1: When we talk about COVID and education, many people think of public and private schools, but not as many people think about charter schools and how they navigated the pandemic. With me to talk about this issue is Bayonne Coleman, CEO and principal at the Rainier Valley Leadership Academy, or RVLA as it's commonly known, a charter school in South Seattle. Good morning, Bayonne. Good morning. All right. Uh, Bayonne, first of all, can you tell our listening audience a little bit about RVLA?
0: Yeah, so um, RBLA is an anti-racist collaborative community school, um, and we're focused on dismantling systemic oppression through scholar leadership. Um, we are a 6th through 12th grade. We have um, <clears throat> over 80% global majority teachers. Um, we are the only black-run um, charter school in Washington State, and we're also the only public anti-racist school in Washington State. Um, our board is Just about 90% global majority, with um, many of them being uh, board members that the community knows very well. Maria Mason, Natalie Hester, uh, Rico Bembry, Carol Peoples-Proctor, Joe Haley, um, and we also have Elijah Ford um, on our board as well, who's an attorney um, from the community. So we're in collaborative community. We don't believe that schools should be plopped into communities. Instead, we believe that communities need to actually um, say what needs to happen as far as education and community. And then it's our responsibility to live up to those expectations with community being throughout the school. So that's just a little bit about who we are.
1: Right. And beyond just to give a little background about charter schools in general as well. Let's talk a little bit about charter schools in general, because some people have some uh, bad perceptions, misconceptions, whatever it is, you, uh, as it relates to what they believe charter schools really are. You know, uh, from your perspective, you know, what is a charter school and what do you believe the benefits of charter schools are to uh, our community?
0: Um, I think first and foremost, um, charter schools are the opportunity for our community to take back education and really reimagine and innovate what education looks like for um, black, indigenous and global majority children first and foremost. Um, the other thing is is that a lot of folks think that charter schools are some type of um, like private school or that we receive funding, or we pull funding away from other public schools. The reality of it is is that, charter schools are the same as public schools. We're both public. The difference is is that one is a traditional public school and one is a charter public school. Um, So we're all in the same boat. We're all providing services for um, scholars who are not paying tuition. um, And any scholar who decides to walk off the streets can come into our school and say that they want to be a part of that school, which is actually a little bit different than traditional um, public schools because you have to be focused in in a specific neighborhood in order to attend that school. And we know so many reasons why that's an issue because different neighborhoods receive different type of funding based off of their tax codes and the levies that are actually present in those communities. And so we know that communities who um, have higher um, real estate uh, actually receive better support in their schools based off of that. So it continues to um, create and support systemic oppression the way that we see it in a major scale. Charter schools also do not receive um, funding from the uh, Washington State Education Fund. We actually receive funding from the Washington State Lottery. So we're not pulling from from the same place. And I think another big misconception is just around that idea that like we're taking money away from traditional public schools. The reality of it is is that for public charter schools and for traditional public schools, we don't that' that's not our money. What folks are forgetting to understand is is that's community's money. Those are hard paying, you know, um, taxpayers who are deciding to send their children to specific schools that are free to them. And that's public education. And so they have a right to be able to make that choice for their children. If they're not receiving um, the proper education or the services that they need at Rainier Valley Leadership Academy, they should be able to have the choice to say, I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm paying my tax dollars. Um, just the same way that someone at a traditional public school should be able, a family should be able to say, I'm not getting the service that we need. And it's time for me to actually try something different. And I want to send my child to Rainier Valley Leadership Academy. We are owning, um, dollars that are not actually ours to own. And so I think like, that's another thing that's really important. And, uh, charter schools also, while we have more autonomy, excuse me, to be able to make more decisions around what happens in the school, thinking about the curriculum and having less red tape to go through in that space and being able to maneuver and pivot quickly, what that also means is that it comes with a higher level of accountability. So at a traditional public school, if we are failing scholars, then that school gets to stay open, right? It's never going to close. You're going to have teachers in there who are, you know, not necessarily doing what they need to be doing. You're going to have, you know, scholars in there who are not receiving the services that they need to uh, receive, et cetera, but that school is never going to be closed. Like the state or the city is not going to come in and say, you know what, you're underperforming, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing for scholars, we're looking at your test scores, you're not providing high-quality public education, you're done. Like the school is being closed. Um, With a charter school, that is the case. If we are not doing what we're we're audited every five years and we have to go up for renewal, and if we don't do what we're supposed to do, then that school can be closed, right? Which is a huge huge difference in the grand scheme of things. So we're afforded different um, opportunities to be able to to reimagine education, but it comes at a cost because if we don't do what we're supposed to be doing, which is where charter comes from, it's a contract. We have a contract with the state if we don't do what we're supposed to be doing we're going to be closed because we're not fulfilling that charter to communities and those uh to community into the washington state public board of education um so i think those are some major major differences we there's also some differences in um financing um and money and so while we receive the same amount with uh, traditional public schools and with charter public schools per pupil What we don't receive at uh, charter public schools is levy money. So those tax dollars that get to go in to provide additional resources to community, um, to families, all of that, we don't get to do that. So that's a huge, huge issue because the same taxpayers are paying their dollars that go to Rainer Valley Leadership Academy and they don't, and they may have even voted for levies because they believe that schools should get them. And I think every single school should get levy money. The problem is, is that charter public schools don't receive levy money, which means that we could be receiving three thousand to four thousand dollars less per pupil than our school that's right down the street from us. That's a traditional public school, so that's an issue. The other thing is, is that um, charter schools do not receive funding specifically for um, facilities, and so with facilities we know that um for example rainer valley leadership academy um has to pay about forty three thousand dollars a month for our lease um, for our school traditional public schools they receive facility um, privileges and so they actually don't have to worry about what that looks like for them to actually pay like it might be either nominal or it might not be anything at all so when we think about that that's you know hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be put back into quality education for scholars but we don't receive those opportunities and those privileges from the state to be able to say that we're going to have relief for facilities so that's that's a concern um so i think those are some of the major differences in that space
1: right and, and beyond let's talk a little bit about covid um and how your school is impacted by covid and what did you learn as a result of covid if anything and it You know, with the funding issue that you just talked about, it, talked about it sounds like the issues related to COVID that other schools have might have been even more magnified with some of the charter schools in the area.
0: Um, absolutely. Most charter schools have about 30% global majority scholars at their schools. We have 98%. Um, and we know how systemic oppression works, right? So systemic oppression puts folks in places um, – strategically and intentionally to make sure that they're you know, not receiving the same resources as other individuals, um, that they're not receiving the same resources as other groups. So with us having predominantly black, indigenous, and global majority scholars at our school, we know that a lot of our scholars are not actually receiving the support that they need financially from the state, um, and they don't have the same resources overall. Um, and we're not even just talking about in education yet, right? So what that means is, is that When we're talking about COVID, we know that individuals are not receiving the type of health care that they actually should be receiving. And so COVID tends to affect folks who have underlying health conditions. Well, a lot of our community doesn't even necessarily know that they have underlying health conditions because they may be working to make sure that they're feeding their families and they may have more than one job or their hours may not allow them to actually go and get health care in the way that they deserve to have it because they just have to make sure that ends meet, right? And so that doesn't become a priority. So now COVID comes along and it exasperates these problems. And so now you have entire uh, communities losing their loved ones. Um, The other issue is, is that you have a lot of multi-generational families. And so you have folks who live in one household who are supporting one another, um, loving on one another, the way that it should be as far as a collaborative community. And even that is exasperated by COVID because then it means that you have a young scholar who's going into school or you have someone who has to go out to work, but then they have to come back into that same household with one of the elders in their home and they're actually putting them at risk, right? So all of these different things um, are different ways that it's affecting Uh, our communities and that folks really aren't talking about and then on top of that we have the pandemic that's been happening for over 400 years which is racism right and so a lot of folks will say like you know oh, well like this is just now being highlighted all of these things that happened since we've been in the pandemic in the COVID pandemic have been happening as far as the race pandemic for well beyond Um, and it's been consistent um, and it's been you know ongoing and it hasn't let up. It's only continued to get worse. And so that directly affects what happens in education as far as COVID. You have scholars who are coming into a building who are losing family members who have been losing family members to racism and to violence and then coming in and now saying that now you have people who are losing family members or watching family members get sick and they don't know what's going to happen. And we expect for them to come in and sit down turn on a laptop screen, um, you know, during the uh, sense of COVID, making trying to make sure that they have all the resources, and then we want to say, go ahead and focus. Like, we have to be very mindful of what that actually looks like. Um, right. And so it, it's affecting our community in major, major ways, and a lot of folks don't understand the cultural aspects of what COVID is actually doing. Like, they're just looking at it from a health standpoint, and we can't do that.
1: Right. And beyond, what... What some of the things that you guys had to to adapt to or some of the pivots that you guys had to make uh, as a result of COVID?
0: Um, So one of the first pivots is we thought we were only going to be um, in a pandemic for two weeks based off of, you know, everything that was happening. We actually shut down two weeks prior to when the state actually shut everything down. So... um, Essentially what happened is is the first thing that we did when we thought it was only going to be two weeks, we actually did um, paper packets for every single family, um, regardless of what their services were, differentiating those packets for scholars, and then saying, like, we're going to send these home to everyone to make sure that they have something to work on while we shut down to just make sure that everybody's safe. Um, Within a week of that time, we found out that the entire, you know, pretty much Seattle Public Schools, um, all schools in the Seattle area for that matter, private as well, we're pretty much shutting down to just, you know, because it was like, this is, this is uh, going across, you know, the city right now. When that happened, we immediately made a pivot to say every single scholar has to be one-to-one, and we have to make sure that every single scholar has a laptop. Um, that was a change for us because we usually had it where we had laptops in classrooms, and scholars could go to their laptop stations and grab a laptop, but they weren't necessarily taking them home. So that was a huge change for us. That meant that we actually needed to drive out to families, make sure that they had laptops, make sure that they have internet. Um, If they didn't have internet, we needed to make sure that they had hotspots. So there were a lot of different things that needed to happen for families. Um, We also understood the cultural aspects. And so we also knew that we needed to even increase communication to families. So that meant that we needed to ensure that we were talking to every single family at least once a week. And then we had to make sure that we were also talking to scholars and doing scholar check-ins to see where their mental health was and how they were doing because this is not something that they're used to and they're dealing with two pandemics at one time so we also um, just ensured that we still had a very strong referral process to our school clinicians to make sure that if something was happening then they had the mental health support to actually make sure that they could talk to a counselor. And if they needed food supports, then we supported with what that looked like for them. And if a family was going through something, because many of our families were going through much more than just COVID at the time, um, and the the effects of COVID as far as, like, losing their um, jobs or, you know, being concerned about losing their homes, we also had to provide a lot more wraparound services through community partners to just make sure that they understood what rent assistance looked like or to get additional food services or to make sure that they had counseling for the entire family. Um, In addition, we changed some of our programming explicitly. We first went to an online platform called Apex, which um, was good at at the time, but not good enough for our scholars. And what I mean by that is that it was um, an opportunity for them to be able to still access curriculum, but the curriculum was not um, culturally relevant and as engaging as we needed it to be. Um, And so that really didn't align with us. So then we made a pivot to going back to our curriculum explicitly and making sure that scholars had everything that they need. But what we also did is we upped the engagement. So we used some other platforms that really supported with like scholars being able to still like use a whiteboard, but being able to use it from their laptop um, or being able to um, play, make quizzes together as an entire class. Um, And then we also try to ensure that um, we started to to test out some cameras and whatnot to try to put those in classes to see, like, how do we try to make sure that this is engaging? Um, We also involved enrichments because scholars are online all day now. So we need to make sure that they have something else outside of just their electives and their enrichments were an opportunity for them to say, this is what we want to see, whether it be um, financial literacy or whether it be um, a different type of physical fitness class or an affinity group for young black females, or a beating class, or a cooking class. Um, And so we did all of the, we listened to what it was that scholars were telling us that they wanted to do um, at home, being away from us, and we made sure that we implemented those things to just continue to bring joy. We did family game nights that were online so that families could actually join and everybody could, you know, be doing trivia or playing some type of game online with us. We also did things where we had, you know, school appropriate paint and sips where we would um, one of our teachers is an artist. And so we actually had her go in and do a painting and we sent painting materials to every single family that wanted to participate for every single um, family member. And then we sent them like, you know, little apple ciders and hot chocolates for the kids and coffee and uh, tea for the adults. So that they could actually sit there and watch online and still be painting, and everybody is still trying to continue to support what it means to be a collaborative community. Um, so we had to think innovatively about what it meant to be community when we're actually separated. How we how do we still stay connected?
1: Right, and and beyond, let's talk about I guess big picture a little bit, um, even outside of COVID, um, and it could be inclusive of COVID. But what would you say that your biggest accomplishment? Uh, of the school has been in the last few years
0: i'd say first and foremost the biggest accomplishment is um, becoming an independent public charter school Um, our school was governed by a large national um, charter school organization that was not from community and actually closed down um, a couple of schools and uh, RVLA was the one that community came in and stepped in and said, "That's not happening here. Like this is the school. We know what we want. Um, we know how we want it run, and we're going to we're going to take back our scholars, and we're going to take back education, and we're going to take back all of it." And so I think like that has been like one of the biggest accomplishments. I think one of the next biggest accomplishments is really transitioning um, to community led leadership within the school. Um, and really supporting what that means to actually have elders who are actually within that leadership and involved in that space, and then making sure that we have board members who are actually from community in that space to continue to hold us accountable as an executive leadership team and as an academic team as well. Um, I think there's been a lot of work to really really make sure that folks understand who we are now as a collaborative community school, because, of course, there's people that always want to hold on to, you know, who were you before? Um, et cetera. And that wasn't community. And so um, I think, you know, being able to have African studies for scholars to actually, um, you know, have in school to have ethnic studies and being able to make those pivots around like what curriculum looks like and what they're actually learning and making sure that it's high quality programming for them. Um, In addition to like, you know, our scholars, um, our entire middle school, all of our middle school scholars are reading stamped at one point, they're reading Claudette Colvin, you know, cold talkers, They're reading books that are not just culturally relevant, but they're also reading books that actually show uh, global majority folks as the protagonists instead of the antagonists, and that's really important. Um, Representation matters. And so being able to um, have conversations around race in classrooms, like we did a, a scholar survey, and we actually asked scholars, like, how am I comfortable about talking about race in school? You know, and again, we have, you know, over 90 percent global majority scholars um, and over 86 percent said that they feel comfortable talking about race in school like that's a huge win for us in the grand scheme of things because we know that in other spaces scholars have not been able to talk about race instead they've been concerned and frustrated and bringing up you know um, the fact that they feel like they are being oppressed by racism And so that's a huge win for us um, to really support that space. And I think like one of the biggest compliments that we just recently received, we did a, uh, we're in PD right now, and we went over to um, two elders' homes. And uh, one of the things that came up was um, Dr. Mims, you know, was uh, looking at the, the community that we have as a teaching staff and as board members, and, you know, folks were going over and speaking to her and Elder Mason and, Dr. Mims at a a point in the night turned and said, you know what, I know that our scholars are safe because I feel safe with this, this, this group of staff that you actually have here, you know, and that was a huge win to us because elders know. And so for Dr. Mims to sit down and talk to, you know, 30, 40 different people throughout the course of that night and have specific conversations with each of them. And by the end of the night, be able to say, like, I know that our scholars are safe here. I know that they're cared about and I know that they're loved because I can see that in your staff. Like, that's a win for us, you know, and that's not a win that is um, that is necessarily, you know what I mean, like, seen as just, like, the academic wins or, you know, just the social-emotional learning wins. Um, right. I also think, like, that's a win in and of itself, too, is that, like, all of our adults in the building have committed to doing social emotional work and have committed to actually being anti-racist and making sure that they're continuing along that journey consistently um, and questioning and making sure that they're continuing to grow as well. So I think those those are some of the biggest, uh, biggest wins
1: for us this year. Right. And beyond, uh, we've got just a a few minutes left, actually. So uh, briefly, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the upcoming school year. A lot of people are having concerns about the upcoming school year uh, because of uh, COVID, the COVID variant, and um, this variant is affecting uh, kids and youth more than the previous variants. You know, what what does that look like to you guys as administrators um, looking at the school year starting in a couple weeks, and um, how are you guys having to plan and prepare for the upcoming school year where there's a lot of unknown
0: yeah so i think what we've learned is to make sure that we have a plan a plan b and plan c (laughs) Um, and a few more uh just within that so um you know if we do have to go back to remote we're ready for what that actually looks like um hopefully that is not the case the governor has uh, mandated that everybody is to be back in school so that is what we are also doing as well so um We are in person specifically um, for this year. We are still enrolling scholars. Um, We still have room in sixth grade. A lot of our other um, classes are beginning to fill up. So if folks want to enroll, they should enroll at myrvla.org to make sure that they do that and then just hit the apply button. Um, But what we're really – we're not stopping in what it means to – to look at what high quality anti-racist education actually looks like for scholars. And I think that that's really important. So we're still decolonizing um, specific content areas within our team. Um, We are continuing to make sure that we're providing special education services to our scholars and families, which is something that never happened. We were actually um, highlighted through University of Washington's uh, SERPI to say the work that we were doing around special education uh, with scholars through COVID to make sure that they were getting the resources that they need. Um, so that's also something that we're very proud of. Um, but essentially, um, we need for community to, to believe in us and continue to, uh, to send us, you know, scholars to be a part of this, um, opportunity to be able to like really collaborate, um, between family and school and really, um, in greater community. But, As far as uh, COVID goes, it it really is going to look like in-person education. Um, We know that some of our families, a few of our families, may not necessarily be able to come back into the school community. Um, And so we're looking at case-by-case, on a case-by-case basis, what does that actually look like for scholars to have to stay remote during this time? Um, And what does it look like for us to continue to provide quality programming and engagement throughout that process of asking one teacher to be teaching a few scholars online and to be teaching an entire class in person as well. So um, so that's really like our work right now.
1: All righty. Well, beyond I want to thank you for joining us on today's show and bringing this information to our community. I'm sure a lot of people have been enlightened and educated, uh, not only about charter schools, but more specifically uh, RVLA this morning.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.